You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Once again, welcome. So glad that you're here this morning. Welcome to Whitefields Community Church. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Hosea, the prophet Hosea in your Old Testament. As you're making your way there, or, you know, you feel free to cheat, use whatever your table of context. I know it can be a little hard to find. Uh, Hosea is the first of the minor prophets, so he's kind of in the back of your Old Testament. Uh, good book. We're going to be studying that today. Let me read to you our text for this morning, and then we'll pray together and we'll get into it. Our text for this morning comes from the book of Hosea, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man who is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, even though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you want to speak to us through it. Lord, as we, as we consider this new year and the things you're doing, as we consider this building, Lord, we thank you for your goodness, your providence, your sovereignty, your grace towards us. And Lord, as we consider this story here with Hosea, Lord, would you make so clear to us how this points us to Jesus, how this is a picture of the gospel. May we understand the gospel today like we never have before. And may it not just be head knowledge, but Lord, would you have it affect our hearts? Would we really understand who you are, what you've done for us, who we are in your eyes? And Lord, we pray that this morning this would be an impactful time and that we would leave here not only commissioned, but transformed. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. What's the hardest thing that God has ever called you to do? Has God ever called you to do something that was hard? Just think about that. You don't have to raise your hand, please don't. But uh, what's the hardest thing that God has ever called you to do? Well, today in the book of Hosea, we meet somebody who was called to do something that you probably didn't want to do and something that was really, really hard, something that was painful painfully hard. And yet he didn't run away from it. He didn't say no to, to that when God called him to do that. And as a result, he came to know the heart of God in a way which he couldn't have otherwise. And also, a lot of people, including us today, benefit from what he did and from this message. You know that we uh, started a new series last week called Remember the Prophets. And this comes from a verse in James, chapter 5, verse 10, which says this, My friends, remember the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord take them as examples of patient endurance under suffering. So the first few weeks of this new year, what we're doing is we're doing exactly what James told us to do. We're taking a few weeks to look at some of the Old Testament prophets, and we're looking at not only what they wrote and what they said, but who they were. We want to consider their messages in light of how they lived, because that's what James tells us. He said, they are examples for you. And that's interesting, right, that James tells us when it comes to the prophets, don't only consider what they said and what they wrote, consider also who they were and how they lived. Consider their lives. You know, our theme for this year is faith in motion. 
Faith in motion. And a lot of our teachings are going to be along that vein of, of thought. So faith in motion. And on that topic of faith in motion, one of the things that James says in his epistle, the epistle of James, he says, you know, it's really easy to say that you believe a lot of things, but the way that you live your life reveals what you actually believe, what you really believe. And sometimes there can be some difference, right, between what we say we believe and what we actually believe, but the way you live your life reveals what you really believe. You know, and James says, you say you have faith. Well, I'll show you my faith by the way that I live. And this is a major theme that we see in the lives of the prophets, and perhaps no more so than in the life of the prophet we're looking at today, who is Hosea. The title of today's message is Living Out the Gospel, Living Out the Gospel. So we're going to be looking first. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Hosea's life and his story here, and then at the end, we're going to make some applications. So that's kind of our breakdown today. We'll talk about the story, and then we'll make some application. So in this series, what we're doing, our approach to it, is that we're looking at the prophets chronologically, right? So as they happened in history, first to last. Now, something that can make the prophetic books confusing if you're reading through your Bible and you start reading them, one of the things that can make them confusing is the way they're organized in your Bible, in my Bible, is not chronological, you know that, right? It's not chronological. They're out of order historically in the way they're organized in our Bibles. The way they're organized is really, in our Bibles, is by size and by theme. But in our study, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at them in chronological order. And I hope that as we do that, it'll help you to make more sense of them. It'll make more sense as you read them in order. So last week, we looked at the prophet Amos. Really, the first prophet of the prophetic books chronologically was Jonah. But we already studied Jonah last summer, so we're not going to do that again. So we started last week with Amos. This week, we're looking at Hosea because, see, Hosea preached after Amos, and he preached to the same people in the same geographical region, which was the kingdom of northern Israel, the, the northern kingdom of Israel. Now at this time, just a re reminder, at this time when these prophets preached, when these prophets wrote, the, kingdom, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. So we know that at the time of David, at the time of Solomon, the nation of Israel was united in one kingdom. But Solomon's son was a man named Rehoboam. And during the time of Rehoboam, another guy came, a rebel named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam led a split in the nation where the northern 10 tribes, remember there's 12 tribes total, the northern 10 tribes followed Jeroboam and they split off and formed a separate kingdom and they separated themselves from Jerusalem. They cut, them, cut all ties with Jerusalem. And so what you ended up with was a northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and then a southern kingdom, which was called Judah. Now Judah, the southern kingdom, that's where Jerusalem was located. And so in their attempt to cut all ties with the southerners, the northern kingdom not only, not only cut ties with Jerusalem politically, but also religiously. You know, they didn't want to be tied to the temple in Jerusalem and have to go down there to make their pilgrimages and make sacrifices. So what they did is they built their own center of worship, their kind of counter temple in Samaria, in Samaria, which is in northern Israel. And so... What you have there is that they had this temple in Samaria. Now, what happened over time, and, and it wasn't very much time, by the way, but what happened is that at that worship center in northern Israel in Samaria, they began to do this thing which is called syncretism. Syncretism is when you mix 
different beliefs together. So in other words, what happened is as they split off from Jerusalem and did their own thing up in the north, they began to mix into their worship of God elements of pagan worship, elements of the pagan worship of the surrounding nations. But not only that, they actually went even further. People began setting up altars and places of pagan idolatrous worship all over the northern kingdom of Israel. And here's what happened. Rather than tearing those down as they should have, the leaders of Israel tolerated them and they let them persist and they didn't do anything about them. Now, you might ask the question, you know, why would anyone in their right mind want to worship some pagan god or an idol? Well, let me explain this to you. It's actually not that far-fetched, and it's not that hard to understand why someone would want to do that. See, the reason the pagan gods were alluring, the reason they were enticing, is because unlike the god of the Bible, these pagan gods could be manipulated or at least they said they could, right? This was the promise. They could be manipulated to give you whatever you want. So whatever it is that you want, you could manipulate the pagan gods to give it to you, right? In these pagan religions, there was a god or a goddess for everything that you might want or desire. So do you want to be wealthy? Do you want to be successful? Do you want to be powerful? Do you want to be alluring? Do you want to have children? Do you want good health? Whatever you wanted, they would tell you, okay, here's how you get it. You make this sacrifice, you worship this God, and you can get whatever you want. Basically, you can manipulate the gods to give you anything you want. Now, if we're honest, I think we all have to uh, admit that most of us want certain things, right? We've all got an agenda in life, right? Things that we want, things that we want to accomplish, things that we want to receive. There's this thing where people are saying, you know... It, Think about it this way. Have you ever heard somebody say this? I don't need God because I can get whatever I need or whatever I want on my own. I, I hear people say that all the time. Well, you need God, but you know what? I don't. I've got everything I need, and I can get whatever I want. I'll get it for myself. And, and think about what that person is saying when they say that. What they're saying is that their view of God is that they turn to God when they want something that they can't get on their own. And that's why they believe that God exists. That's At least that's why they turn to him when they need something that they can't get on their own or they want something that they can't get on their own. And, and that's what a lot of people, I would say even most people do. I think that even some Christians do that. And if you think about it, have you ever heard somebody say something like this, right? They might say, well, I used to be a Christian or I tried out Christianity for a while, but I had this certain situation or circumstance in my life. I prayed about it. I went to church. I tried to do all the Christian stuff, but my situation didn't change or things didn't work out the way I hoped they would. So I'm done with Christianity, right? I gave God an ultimatum. You do this for me or I'm done with you. And he didn't do what I wanted. So now I'm out, right? I'm doing something else. Or somebody might say, well, I will not be a Christian because I don't like what the Bible says about this or that issue. Maybe it's a social issue or something like that. What's happening in that case when someone says something along those lines? They're essentially saying is, I want God to give me whatever I want, and I want God to play by my rules. I want God to give me whatever I want, and I want to play by my rules. The only problem is that the God of the Bible won't do that. Like, he won't be your genie in a bottle. He won't play by your rules. The God of the Bible is a free-range God, right? I love this verse in the Psalms. It says, God's in heaven and he does whatever he wants, right? That's how he is, right? That's the God of the Bible. You cannot manipulate him. You cannot impose your will on him. And some people don't like that. 
And you know, one thing I always suggest for people to ask themselves is this. Ask yourself this question really honestly. Do you worship God because you find him useful or because you find him beautiful? I need to say it again because you need to ask yourself that question. Do you worship God because you find him useful or do you worship God because you find him beautiful? Because they're drastically different reasons and they, they lead to drastically different things. See, a lot of people out there, they come to God because they find him useful to them in some way, right? He's the big man upstairs, right? He can pull some strings for you so you can accomplish the things that you want to accomplish or get the things that you want in your life. The problem is, what are you going to do when he doesn't do that thing that you wanted him to do? What are you going to do if God doesn't give you the thing that you asked for? What are you going to do if you pray for something and God says no or not right now? What if his will for your life is different than your agenda for your own life? What if what his word says rubs you the wrong way? What are you going to do in those cases? Because at that point, God is no longer useful to you. And if the only reason you worship God is because you find him useful, well, what about when you no longer find him useful? What are you going to do? And what a lot of people do at that point is they turn and they walk away. Or, like the people of Israel, what they'll say is, well, if God won't give me what I want, if the Christian God, the Bible God, won't give me what I want and do the things I want him to do, well, maybe I'll look around and see what the other religions out there have to offer. Maybe they can help me get what I want. See, to these people, they were pursuing what they wanted for their own lives rather than what God wanted for their lives. And when God wouldn't do what they wanted, they looked elsewhere. And to those people, God sent this prophet Hosea. And God called Hosea not only to preach a a sermon with his words, but to live out a message with his life. And this is something we're going to see throughout the Old Testament prophets. This is a recurring thing in the prophets. It's called, you might call them action sermons, right? Action sermons. Well, we're going to see action sermons like with Isaiah, who we're looking at next week. With Jeremiah, it was called to live out an action sermon. Ezekiel. See, God didn't only give them words to say or words to write. He also gave them things to do which communicated his message to the people. This particular action sermon that God called Hosea to live out was perhaps the most shocking, the most surprising, the most heartbreaking of all. Look at what it says there in Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. God told Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. Now why would he do that? Why would God tell him to do that? Because here's why. God is calling Hosea to live out a very vivid picture of what our sin is like and what his love is like and what he has done for us. Right? God is calling Hosea to go and love a woman with a sordid past. And despite her past, Hosea is going to court her. Hosea is going to woo her. Hosea is going to ask her to marry him. And then he's going to bring her off the streets and give her a home, give her a new identity and a new name. He's going to give her security and love, protection and care. He's going to give her a new future. Why? Well, it says there right in in chapter 1, verse 2, because this is a picture of who we are. This is a picture of what our sins are like. This is a picture of how God loves us and what he has done for us. See, in the Bible, there is a connection between 
idolatry and adultery. Idolatry and adultery, they're connected. Idolatry, in other words, is a form of what you might call spiritual adultery. So idolatry is a form of spiritual adultery. James chapter 4, verse 4 puts it this way. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James isn't accusing these people of committing literal physical adultery. He's accusing them of committing spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery is when you turn from God and worship other things. So in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, John says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Now you might say, okay, yeah, I get that, right? That was probably a thing back then. People worshipped idols. They had idols and stuff. But I mean, people don't worship idols anymore, right? Maybe, maybe Hindus or people who live out in the middle of nowhere in other countries and stuff. But nobody around here worships idols these days, right? Wrong. Wrong, right? The, those, all of those idols that people worship in whatever culture they worship them in, in the past or even today, all of those little statues represent something. They represent something. And, and they represent things that people worship. They all represent something concrete. Things that represent power, success, health, family, money. And let me ask you, do people still worship those kinds of things today? Of course they do. Do people still live their lives in pursuit of those kinds of things today? Of course. See, idols aren't just statues. An idol is anything that takes the place of God in your heart. An idol is anything that takes the place of God in your heart. You know, Martin Luther wrote about this in his commentary on the Ten Commandments. He begins his commentary on the Ten Commandments. It's very good, by the way, if you're ever interested in reading it. And he, and he says this, he starts by talking about the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. And what Martin Luther said is this, whatever your heart clings to and relies on, that is your God. Whatever your heart clings to and relies on, that is your God. And to have any other God other than the true and living God is idolatry. That's an idol. And he said the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We take good things and we make them into great things, into ultimate things that we trust in, that we cling to, that we hope in in ultimate ways. And so in this image of, of what Hosea is doing and living out, going out and marrying a prostitute, God is saying to the people of Israel, he's saying, look guys, this is what I did with you. This is a picture of what I did with you. You were an idolatrous people. You worshiped other gods. You had a sordid past, but I came to you and I placed my love upon you and I chose you and I brought you into a relationship with me. I gave you a new name, a new identity, a new future, and I made you my own. Hosea marrying a prostitute is a picture of what God has done for us. It's a picture of the gospel. See, all of us have our own sordid past, right? We've all sinned. We've all done things that we shouldn't have done. And yet God, in his great love for you, in his surprising love for you, he pursued you, he found you, he invited you into a relationship with him, and he offered you a new identity, a new home, a new future. It's been said that there is no more powerful presentation of the gospel in the Old Testament than that of Hosea. The major theme of Hosea's life and message is this, that God loves and pursues sinful people. 
God loves and pursues sinful people. The message of Hosea is this. It tells us how God feels about wayward people and how God acts towards wayward people. God loves sinners like you and like me. He pursues us. He invites us into relationship with us. He redeems us. And once we've entered into that relationship with him, then after that, once we are together with him, he is long-suffering, he is patient, and he is faithful. Even when we are faithless, you know, Timothy, or Paul wrote to Timothy, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because that's just who he is and he cannot deny himself. And I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Check it out. Here's what he said. When I thought that God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could have ever rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. You know, some people have this idea that, that God in the Old Testament was a God of anger and wrath, but God in the New Testament is a God of love, and they're really different, right? And they'd be like, you know, maybe the Old Testament was kind of like God's younger years when he used to fly off the handle and he was really uptight, you know? But now he's grown up and he's kind of mellowed out and chilled out, and now he's, he's cool, right? Well, that's not the case, right? God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God has and always will be and still is a God of both justice and mercy, a God of truth and a God of love and compassion and grace. And here in Hosea, we see all of those things portrayed very clearly. What God wanted the people of Israel to understand through Hosea's actions, his action sermon, he wanted them to understand is that, number one, their actions hurt him and saddened him. And yet, number two, in spite of their actions, he was still committed to them. He was still going to be faithful to them. He wouldn't give up on them. And so he sends Hosea in to remind them and to reach out to them and to warn them of what will happen if they do not turn from this path that they're currently on. Verse 3, Hosea went out and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. So Hosea marries this prostitute. It's a picture of what God did with Israel. You remember when God went and called Abraham, Abraham was an idol worshiper at that time. In, in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua reminds the people that when God called them, when God called their ancestors, they were worshiping other gods. In other words, they were not perfect people. They had sordid paths, and yet God took them, placed his love on them, and entered into a covenant with them. That word covenant, that's not a word that we use a lot every day. You know, you probably didn't use that word in this past week as you were at your job or doing whatever you did. Now, that word covenant, though, it speaks of a particular kind of relationship, a relationship which is predicated on promises which people make to each other. It's predicated on vows that people take to each other. You know, one of the only times in our culture today when we use the word covenant is in regard to what is really maybe the only covenant relationship that exists in our society today, and that is marriage. We use this word when it comes to marriage. And not surprisingly, throughout the Bible, God likens his relationship with his people to a marriage. In the Old Testament, God calls himself the husband of his people, and he calls the people the wife of Yahweh. And this is a beautiful thing, right? Just like Hosea did with Gomer, God comes to us, Despite our sin, despite our past, he invites us into relationship with him and he takes us to be his bride. And it says in verse, they're continuing on, verse 3, she conceived and bore him a son. 
And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now the house of Jehu that's being talked about here, the house of Jehu, that was a dynasty that was the ruling dynasty in that northern kingdom of Israel. And so what God is telling them is that because of the things that the leaders of the kingdom have done, God is going to put an end to their kingdom and he's going to put an end to that whole northern kingdom altogether. By the way, the name Jezreel, it means to scatter. And in not much time after this, God says, this is your last warning. We're going to scatter the people of Israel into other nations. And we know that that's going to happen. Because we read last week in Amos, remember that Amos warned them, if you don't repent, then he's going to allow the Assyrians to come and conquer them militarily and carry them off into captivity. And we know that that's exactly what happened before uh, Hosea was even done preaching to the northern kingdom. Now, if you thought that was bad, check out what happens next in verse 6. It says this, Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter. Now, you'll notice that in verse 3, it said that she bore him a son, meaning bore Hosea a son. But in verse 6, it says that she bore a daughter. It doesn't say that it was Hosea's. And many scholars believe that what this means, what this indicates, is that even at this point, Gomer was going back into her adulterous lifestyle, going out with, with other men. Verse 6, the second half of it says this, The Lord said to him, Call her name, this baby girl, call her name, No Mercy. Call her name, No Mercy. Because he says, Because of what you've done, I won't show any mercy to the kingdom of Israel. Now picture this scene. Here's Hosea. He's at home with a toddler, right? You would stop weaning a toddler probably around age three at that time. So here's Hosea at home with this toddler. And every time he turns around, his wife is taken off. And he doesn't know where she is. But of course, he has his suspicions. And one day she tells him he's pregnant and he doesn't know. Maybe she doesn't even know. Is it his baby? Is it somebody else's baby? Neither of them probably know. You know, in the book of Isaiah... God describes his grief that he feels, the pain and grief that he feels over the attitudes and the sins of his people. And what he says is that though I, I've shown you mercy, though I've shown you love, you have constantly turned your backs on me. And he said that they would, they would come back to him when the bottom fell out on their lives, when everything fell apart, when their idols couldn't help them anymore. And what he says there in Isaiah, he says the only thing he can compare this grief to that he feels over the sins and the attitudes of his people, he says it's like the grief that a young woman feels whose husband has left her for another woman. Now you can think about that, and I, I don't know if any of you have experienced that, but I imagine that is one of the most traumatic, one of the most crushing, one of the most hard things that a person could ever feel or go through, to have their spouse abandon them and leave them for another person. And God knows that feeling is what he's saying. God asked Hosea not only to enter into this relationship knowing that his wife had a past, but also knowing that his wife would have a propensity, a desire, an inclination to go back into that lifestyle again and again and break his heart over and over again. And this, friends, understand, this is a picture of us. This is a picture of us. We are Gomer. I'm Gomer. You're Gomer. How many of you have ever made a promise to God, right? You're like, God, forgive me for this thing. Or God, thank you for forgiving me for this thing. Thank you for your grace. I promise you, I'm never going to do that again. 
I'm never going to look at that again. I'm never going to go to that place again. I'm never going to have those thoughts again. I'll never do it again. That's a lot like Gomer taking her wedding vows, right? I, I pledge that I'm going to be faithful to you forever. But then what happens? Like Gomer, we break those vows, don't we? And you do do it again. You do look there again. You do go there again. You go back into your old ways, even after you promised that you wouldn't. Guys, Gomer is a picture of us. And look at how God responds. We see God's response in the picture of how Hosea responds. Verse 8, it says this, When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord called his name, Not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. God is saying, this is how I'm tempted to react. This is how I want in my emotions to react to you. I want to show you no mercy. I want to, I'm tempted to tell you that you're no longer my people. I've forsaken you. That's what my feelings want to do because you've cheated on me and it's hurt me. You've gone chasing after other lovers. It breaks my heart. And that's what I feel like I want to do is just say no mercy and you're not my people anymore. And yet that's not what he does. I want you to understand that. That is not what he does. Look at verse 10 there in chapter 1. It says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. See, what God's promise is, is that although he will chasten the people in order to wake them up, in order to get their attention, in order to shake them out of their idolatry and get them to turn back to him, which, by the way, did happen as a result of the exile that they were carried into. Yet, he never abandoned them. He never forsook them. He promised that he would be faithful to them and he would carry out his good plans for them. In chapter 2, we're not going to read it, but here's what happens. God pleads with his people through Hosea to turn away from their idolatry and come back to him. And Hosea compares their idolatry to his wife's what she's been doing to him, the adultery, going out, committing adultery, and being with other people. But now check out what he says in, in chapter 3. This is what we read at the beginning. Again, the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and who is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Understand, this isn't a different woman that he's going out to get. This is his same wife, Gomer. See, at this point, what's happened is that Gomer has gone out and she's gone fully, headlong, full bore, back into that old lifestyle of adultery and prostitution. And God is telling Hosea, I want you to go out and walk the streets, and I want you to find your wife, I want you to pursue her, and I want you to bring her home. Now just imagine the scene, right? Try and imagine this in your mind's eye, right? Like Hosea walking the streets at night, going to that part of town where prostitution takes place. He's knocking on doors looking for his wife. I picture him there with his three kids in tow, right? They're about nine. The oldest son, nine years old. The daughter, six years old. The youngest one, probably three years old. You know, having to hold dad's finger as they walk through this bad part of town where prostitution takes place. And what are they doing? They're knocking on doors, looking in houses, and they're looking for mom. And finally they find her. And look what it says, chapter three, verse two. So I found her and I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Guys, in the book of Exodus, it says that the price, the minimum price for a slave was 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. 
He goes here and he buys his wife. She, she's essentially become a sex slave, like we would call it today, a, a, a prostitute who is purchased by people. And it says that he bought her for 15 pieces of silver. That's half the price of a slave. And what that means, not only has she become a sex slave, but she's been so beat up, so degraded. She, she's on the clearance rack. Nobody wants her. She's marked down. She's discounted. She's devalued. And Hosea went, and despite all she had done, the fact that nobody wanted her, all, everything she had done to him, he buys her back. He pays the price for her, and he redeems her from this slavery that she's in, and he brings her back home. Now, friends, that is a picture of the gospel. Do you see it? You know, there's a famous story by a well-known preacher, and if you've heard it before, well, you're going to hear it again because I'm going to tell you anyway, right? About it. He tells this story. He says, I was at the, he says, you know, he was at this purity conference one time, right? These conferences, which are all about encouraging young people to save themselves for marriage. And there was a guy on stage giving a talk about purity and how important it is. And this guy used an object lesson. What he did is he pulled out a single stem rose, right? A single rose. And he looked at the rose and he talked about how beautiful it was. He turned it. He looked at it, talked about its beauty. And then he asked if anyone wanted to touch the rose. And so somebody raised their hand. So he carried the rose out to that person in the crowd and encouraged them, touch it, feel its petals, smell it, just enjoy it. And he said to that person, okay, now what I want you to do, now just pass it around. And anybody who wants to, let them touch it and feel the rose and smell it and do whatever they want and just hold it and handle it. And then he said, when you're done, you guys can give it back to me. And so the rose worked its way around the room. Everybody touched it, felt its petals. And by the time it made it back to the speaker, as you can imagine, it was disheveled. It was broken. A lot of the petals were missing. And it had lost much of the beauty that it had originally had. And the point was, the man was making this point, that this is what happens if you don't practice purity. You become like this rose. And the speaker held up the rose for everyone to see, and he said, look at this. Who would want this? Used, damaged goods. And the guy telling the story says he almost leaped out of his skin. He was so upset by this, and he just wanted to yell out in front of everyone and say, who wants the rose? Jesus. Jesus wants the rose. That's the entire point of the gospel. Don't you even understand? We are that rose, right? We are those used, damaged goods. And Jesus wants the rose. Do you understand that, friends? Jesus wants you. You and me, we're like Gomer. We've been chewed up and spit out by life and sin. We're damaged goods. Who would want somebody like you? Who would want somebody like me? Let me tell you who. Jesus Jesus wants somebody like you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, Jesus wants you. That's what we see here in the book of Hosea. That's the gospel. Just as Hosea went out and preached, uh, he purchased Gomer. He purchases her off the trading block. He redeems her from this bondage and slavery and sin that she's in. He brings her home again. He welcomes her back. He cares for her. He calls her once again his wife. This is what God has done for you in Christ. He has purchased you by his own shed blood. He has redeemed you and made you his own. Even if you've walked away from him, even if you promised again and again that you wouldn't do it again, but then you did, you understand that his grace is enough. His love is relentless. 
He is faithful. He is good. And he loves you. And he wants to bring you home to him. And I love what it says here in verse 4. He says this, chapter 3, verse 4. He said, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So also I will be to you. He's saying, I've redeemed you and I want you to be faithful to me now. And I'm going to be faithful to you. See, he doesn't just say, hey, go and do it some more if you want. No, he says, look, I've redeemed you. I don't want you to keep doing that. Look at, what you, look at what's happened to you. No, he says, look, I want you to stop doing that, and I'm going to be faithful to you, and I want you to be faithful to me. Let me read you that quote from Charles Spurgeon one more time. He says this, When I thought that God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could have ever rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. See, this is what happens when you come to understand the gospel. You can't help but respond to God's amazing love and grace towards you. That's what Hosea is all about. And now that we've looked at the story very briefly, I'd like to make three quick points of application. There are three big things that we need to see and learn from the life and message of Hosea. Number one, We're going to talk about drinking from poisoned wells. Number two, we're going to talk about living out the gospel. And number three, we'll talk about the true hero of the story. So drinking from poisoned wells. What we see with Gomer is that her her adultery, it caused what in her life? Did it cause her a lot of joy and a lot of fun? Absolutely not. It caused nothing but destruction. It hurt her husband. It hurt her family. And ultimately it hurt her. It degraded her and damaged her. And what this is, friends, this is a reminder that sin is not bad because it's forbidden. See, understand that. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. That's a whole paradigm shift that we need to have in our minds. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. In other words, the reason God wants you to turn from sin and come to him, the reason God says, do this and don't do that, is not because he's some kind of cosmic killjoy who doesn't want anybody to have any fun, right? Watching and seeing somebody having fun and trying to shut him down. No, it's because he knows a lot of stuff and he doesn't want you to hurt yourself. He doesn't want you to hurt others around you. Do you know this? God wants you to be happy and joyful. See, I sometimes hear people say this, uh, oh, God doesn't want you to be happy. What are you talking about? God wants you to be happy and joyful with deep, true, real happiness and joy. And the way to get that, in other words, is not for you to do things that that he has forbidden. The way for you to get that joy is for you to truly walk in his ways and take his advice. See, the reason he's forbidden these things is to save you from the pain and suffering and destruction that they will inevitably bring upon you. There's this incredible verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24, where they're talking about the law of God, the rules that God has given them. And here's what they say. They say, God's law which was for our good always. God's law, which was for our good always. See, the things that God says to do or not to do, they're for our good. They're for your good because he loves you. See, when we sin, it's like we're thirsty people who are drinking out of poisoned wells. Thirsty people, desperately thirsty, and yet we're drinking out of poisoned wells. And those poisoned wells, not only will they not quench your thirst, but they will hurt you and even destroy you. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, we read about an occasion when Jesus spoke with a woman at an actual well. And during their conversation, it came up that this woman had been married five times and she was currently living with a man who was not her spouse. And Jesus told her, 
He said, ma'am, you know, obviously you are seeking after something in these relationships with these men. And clearly it's not working out, right? Like you keep going back to more relationships, seeking after something. And whatever it is that you're looking for in these relationships, clearly it's not working out. And he told her something. He said, you know what? If you knew who I was, you would come to me and you would ask for living water. And if you drank of that water, you would never thirst again. He wasn't talking about literal water. He's talking about that which can quench the deepest thirst that you have in your soul forever. That same promise is true for me and for you. See, that's what sin is. It's when we go looking for something good, but we look for it in a way that is destructive, that will destroy us ultimately. That's, think about substance abuse. Think about adultery. You're looking for something in that, aren't you, right? For acceptance, attention, perhaps escape from the harsh realities of this world. Those are good things, but the way you're going about it are ways that will, number one, not fulfill you, and number two, they will hurt you and perhaps even destroy your soul. The answer is not to drink from poisoned wells, but to drink from the true well of living water in Jesus. The solution is to bring that desire to God and find in him those things which your heart longs for and desires. So let me encourage us with this. As we look at Gomer, she's a picture of Israel and she's a picture of us. And let us be encouraged not to drink from the poison wells of idolatry and sin, but to turn to the true well of living water in Jesus Christ. Secondly, and very quickly here, living out the gospel. Hosea lived out the gospel in his interactions with Gomer. And in the same way, God calls us to live out the gospel. Once we've received it, we're then called to live it out in our interactions with other people. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says this phrase. He says, just as God has forgiven you in Christ, now you forgive each other. In Ephesians, Paul tells married couples to live out the gospel in their marriage. See, once we've received the gospel, once we've received God's grace, then we're called to live it out in our interactions with other people and to bring God glory by doing so, by being faithful to our word just as God is faithful to his word, by showing other people grace just as God has shown us grace, by being generous and giving of what you have just as God has been immeasurably generous with us in Christ. So Hosea is a picture of living out the gospel. And finally, the true hero of the story. You know, this whole story points beyond just Hosea himself. It points to someone else. Do you know what Hosea's name means? It means salvation. And did you know that that name, Hosea, in Hebrew, comes from the same root as another Hebrew name, which was Joshua, or in Hebrew it's pronounced Yeshua. And if that name rings a bell, it should, because that was Jesus' name in Hebrew when he walked this earth. Yeshua, it's related to Hosea. What Yeshua means, it means God saves, or God is salvation. You might remember that when the angel came to Joseph before Jesus was born, the angel told Joseph, Mary's going to have a child, and you shall name his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. You see, in Jesus, God was pursuing us like, Homer, uh, like uh, Hosea pursued Gomer. In Jesus, God was redeeming us like when Hosea purchased Gomer and redeemed her, all because of his faithful, steadfast love. In Romans chapter 9, Paul quotes from two verses in Hosea chapters 1 and 2. He says this, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. 
who, or her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. In other words, Hosea's promise of restoration is fulfilled in Jesus. In Hosea chapter 3, verse 5, that last verse we read, it says that in that day they will seek the Lord again and they will seek David their king. Now, if you know the chronology, you know this was written long after David died. So how is it that they're going to seek David the king? Well, of course, it was also pointing to a time in the future. How are they going to worship somebody who died in the past in the future? Well, here's how. They're not talking about David himself. They're talking about the son of David, Jesus Christ, the promised king. We know his name. Now, where Israel failed to be faithful to God, where we have failed in our sins, Jesus has not failed. He has been victorious. He lived the life that you and I should have lived on our behalf. He died the death that we should have died in our place. And he did that in order to redeem you and restore you so that you who were not beloved can be called the beloved of God, so that you who were not children of God can become children of God. My question for you today is this. Will you receive that grace? Will you receive that grace? Will you trust in it and rely on it and cling to it anew today? Despite your past, despite whatever backsliding is in your past, know this, that God loves you. Now may we be those who embrace the gospel and who seek to live it out in our lives, in our interactions with others because of what Jesus did for us. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your grace towards us. And we see such an incredible picture of that here with Hosea and, and his uh, way that he treated his wife, Gomer. Lord, thank you that uh, you have treated us this way. That despite our past, despite our backslidings, despite our failures, our failure to keep our own promises that we've made to you, Lord, that you are so gracious to us. You are so good. And Lord, just uh, as we consider that, one who is so good, one who seeks our good that way, Lord, may we respond. May we respond by living out the gospel in our interactions with others. And we pray that you would strengthen us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.